Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 18 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is a working actor of many talents, Amy Landecker. She played Sarah Pfefferman, one of the three key siblings of the Emmy Award-winning series, Transparent. I don't know if I'm ready to give up my Saturday mornings. Farmer's Market and the pupusa lady. Oh. It's a pupusa lady you're going to miss, huh? Yeah. I really like her pupusas. And has the role of Detective Nancy Costello on the Showtime series, Your Honor. World needs more cops like you. (laughs) Never been easier on flattery, Judge. Makes me think somebody wants something. Amy previously made an indelible impression as the heavy-lidded, nude, sunbathing neighbor, Mrs. Samsky, in the Coen Brothers, A Serious Man. I don't see you much around either. Uh, Yes. Uh, Actually, I haven't been home a lot recently. I, uh... My wife and I are, uh, well, she's got me staying at the Jolly Roger, a little motel there on, uh, uh, you're in the doghouse, huh? Yes. That's an understatement, I guess. I, thank you. Uh, I guess I... Do you take advantage of the new freedoms? I first interviewed Amy Landecker in 2011, when she'd been cast as Paul Reiser's wife on the NBC sitcom, The Paul Reiser Show. This was a big break, and right before I finished reporting the story, the series was canceled after just two episodes. Yet Amy remained cheerful and upbeat and moved forward, because that's what working actors do. I first knew of Amy before then, when she was a Chicago theater actor earning acclaim for fearless performances in Tracy Letts's Killer Joe and the off-Broadway production of Letts's Bug, which won her an Obie Award. Even if you didn't know who she was, you couldn't escape her voice in the Cymbalta ads that ran for years. Dizziness or fainting may occur upon standing. Side effects include nausea, dry mouth, and constipation. Ask your doctor about Cymbalta. Also, she overdubbed Julia Roberts' voice in movies and trailers, so sometimes when you thought you were listening to Julia Roberts, you actually were hearing Amy Landecker. Rewind further, and I grew up listening to Amy's father, legendary DJ John Records Landecker on the Chicago Top 40 station WLS. John and I later bonded in the downtown screening room when we both were reviewing movies, and he would give me updates on his daughter's career progress. He was proud of her then and remains so today. And you can still catch him weeknights on WGN Radio in Chicago. Did growing up with a famous dad prepare Amy for navigating the world of show business? She talks about that here. She also discusses how she and her husband, actor Bradley Whitford, both contracted COVID over the holidays, ending a wonderful theater run for him and killing a movie part for her. Yet they've still been able to work steadily during the pandemic. She talks about the script she's been finishing that she plans to direct, as well as work she's doing with the Steppenwolf Theater Company that could lead to a return to the Chicago stage. Amy also reflects on projects that pushed her boundaries on discomfort, such as a sex scene in the Showtime series House of Lies. <laughs> this is my naughty room. Then again, she had to sing in the transparent musical finale, which made her feel exposed in a different way. What did she think of the series ending that way? Working actors like to draw attention to their quote-unquote special skills. So Amy Landecker's resume used to tout her talent for primitive sound emanation. That translates to an impressively accurate, extremely loud monkey screech. Listeners, you will hear her primitive sound emanation in this conversation. 
It's always fun and illuminating to catch up with Amy Landecker. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Here's Amy Landecker on Pop. Hi, how are you? I'm pretty good. I, I mean, I don't know. It's been a weird, you know, it's a weird time for everyone, but I'm fine. I have n- nothing to complain about other than, you know, the general uncertainty of what our, what's, what, what our lives are about. <laughs> other than everything being up in the air, it's all yeah, other than it, we're some strange pandemic and no one can agree on how to deal with it. And no one knows what's going to happen next. And um, I mean, I do feel like a lot of people I know are kind of in the same mental place, which is, you know, just a, a certain, um, I, you know, it's funny. I was listening to a, a podcast of, uh, sorry to bring up <laughs> another. No, podcast. it's okay. There's no um, competition. We're Ezra all, all Klein. I was listening to Ezra Klein and he had on this woman who wrote a book called the extended mind. And it's about how we're not meant to just like sit here all the time, that that's actually not the way, the best way for the brain to think and how we're sort of, we've sort of proven it to ourselves uh, with COVID because everybody feels kind of oddly, vaguely depressive and lost. And I think that that is a result of this kind of um, sedentary lifestyle is my point. Yeah. Vaguely depressive is actually putting it nicely. (laughs) Yeah. Depends. Some people it's full on mine. I say vaguely and for no real reason other than just, I mean, I did just, I did just have COVID over the holidays and um, Mm -hmm. it wasn't awful. You know, I was, I am a, a um, pro vaxxer and uh, I am vaxxed and boosted and, um, and didn't, and, and, didn't really get crazy sick, but, you know, was isolated and, you know, didn't get to see the kids for Christmas and things like that. Cause me and Bradley both had it. Yeah. We were supposed to go on a family trip and that got canceled. And, um, we were going to go to Obuji, but we were going to go to, uh, where white Lotus was shot in Hawaii. Oh, really? <laughs> Huge fan. You're going to re- re- relive the greatest moments of that show. And- yeah. I wanted to like, you know, go pretend I was Connie Britton and uh, <laughs> Steve's on, but anyway, it was, it's, it's all really like high. I, I have nothing to complain about is the long and short of it, but I'm feeling a little funky. That's what I'll say. Feel a little Did funky. You- do you feel, I mean, in terms of getting over COVID, do you feel completely better or are there lingering? I do. I will say I don't, I do feel sore a lot, which kind of uh, is a little disconcerting. Like my, my body feels sore and when, and it's not because I'm doing anything differently. So that's weird. And I don't know if it's COVID related or, or, you know, just aging related. <laughs> Did you, did you lose your sense of smell and taste? No, no, no. I only have one friend I know with this Omicron, which is what I'm assuming we got. Cause it, you know, I've, I haven't gotten, I, I feel like the, the vaccine has held up very well to the other variants, but I felt like it was obvious something had shifted because right. everyone I knew all of a sudden had COVID and we didn't before. So I'm assuming that's what it was. And that's not one of the major side effects of that one, but I did have one friend who that happened to. And I think that that would be so God awful. I can't even imagine. Um, cause you know, that's like one of the great pleasures of life. So, and right. it must be terrifying depending on how long it takes to come back. But no, I just had like, 
I had body aches and cold and sore throat and coughing and just like a normal kind of cold situation, a little fluey. Um, but yeah, I wonder, I mean, you wonder some of it is like, is it psychosomatic that you, that you, you know, like question whether it's affecting you in some other way, you know, it's like, right. Oh, am I brain fog? I can't. Yeah, exactly. 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 And I have a friend who questions whether the vaccine gave her brain fog, but she also has had COVID twice. And you just go like, <laughs> yeah, we all have like our theory about what's affecting us when really, I think, this general state of the world is enough to justify brain fog. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say between aging and, and what's going on in the world, I feel like I exactly. brain fog all the time and, exactly. and being, and being sedentary by the way, and sitting yes. around in your, your yes. house or apartment or whatever. And it's too. January and February and I don't care what city you live in. The days are shorter. Well, not all over the world, but um, you know, most of the people I know are living in places with, you know, shorter days and lot, not a lot of sun. And I remember when I was in therapy, when I was younger, the my therapist told me that February was like, sorry to be dark, but like suicide month where everyone was talking about wanting to die. And that's when I lived in Chicago when it was really cold. And uh, yeah. yeah, that's it's, why it's the shortest month. Cause it's so bad. Thank God. Yeah. Thank God. So, you know, I mean, that's kind of the, the, the general mood, but I also have a lot to look forward to. I'm, I'm, I've got some, I have season two of your honor coming up, which I'm excited awesome. about. And I have, um, I'm going to go back on handmaid's tale. So I'm excited Ooh. about that. And, um, yeah, some other, some irons in the fire. So I, I, hopefully that'll wake me up. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, not to dwell on the COVID thing, but what was your reaction when you realized you were positive? Did you, was you it know, like a, I was so curious because I get tested all the time because of work. Like some people don't get a lot of COVID tests, but I've probably had hundreds and hundreds of COVID tests over the last couple of years. Cause every, if you're ever on a job, you're going to get tested every two days. And I just never had a positive test, you know, all this time I'm like wondered if maybe I was completely immune to it. Um, and I wondered, my dad asked me that he's like, what does it feel like when it comes up positive? I was sort of uneventful. I mean, I, I guess I wasn't scared cause I knew, um, I didn't feel that in some ways it was almost like a weird relief because I had been isolating basically Bradley and I were watching a movie during the day because he was doing a play at night. He was doing a Christmas Carol at the Amundsen. And so our, you know, time to hang would be during the day. So we were watching something and sitting on the couch next to each other. And he was sneezing all day. And I was like, honey, I think you have a cold. And, um, that night he went to work and tested positive and the entire production was shut down. And I wow. immediately went into, um, quarantine, like from him in the house. And I was supposed to go shoot a movie in New Mexico that, that week I had to I got replaced because I, and I didn't even know if I had it. I was just replaced because I'd been exposed, which was something that I've been trying to explain to people. Some people feel like, you know, this is a big debate amongst the world that we're all having is like, how careful are you? Some people don't care at all. Other people are incredibly terrified. Like what's the range. And I had a friend who wasn't vaccinated and I wouldn't hug her. And I know that she felt like I was being some sort of weird zealot, but I was like, it's not just that I can't get COVID or I think I'm going to die if I get COVID, but that I, 
I shut as an actor, we shut down stuff if we test positive, right? Like right. most people who go to work aren't getting tested every day and the entire office isn't shut down. You go home. But in a production like Bradley getting sick, the whole production is now. Um, well, they had multiple cases and the understudy didn't want to go on that night. Never wanted to be safe. And then they just looked at the looked at the situation and were like, we're just going to close the show early. And so I, a perfect example, too, for me was I knew I had a job coming up. And sure enough, I lost that job just because I was exposed. And thank God I was honest about it because I did end up having COVID and I would have been stuck in a hotel over the holidays in New Mexico with COVID, which would not have been fun. Um, but I didn't test positive for like five, six days. So I had, I felt sick, but I just thought, Oh, I'm, I guess I don't have COVID and I just have a cold and blah, 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 blah. blah. So but it was one of those things. And also I wasn't allowed to be around him because I was trying to not have it. So as soon as I had it, we realized, Oh, now at least we can be together and we couldn't be with our kids. So we got to spend the holiday together. So, and so that way it was almost like a nice thing. Like, it's like a Hallmark movie. In yeah, exactly. yeah. It was like, Oh, how romantic. And a then COVID Christmas. Weird, like you have this weird honeymoon period for a few weeks after where you also feel safe once you're through it, like that you can't get anyone else sick and that you're not going to get sick again. So there, it does have its silver linings COVID. Um, and I feel grateful that I can isolate and that I know I didn't give it to anybody else. And he didn't either. Like as soon as we, well, I don't know if before he isolated, but like, I was like, yeah, it's a, it's a privilege. And I feel lucky to be able to have tests and to be able to have a job where I'm aware and I can protect other people and not feel like I'm adding to the problem. So, um, you know, it wasn't like, it's not, it's not something I would recommend because obviously too, we don't know how the virus, we, you don't know a lot about it. And it's a weird little virus. I will say it's different than a nut. Like I was really sick in October with a non COVID thing. The, the weird thing about COVID and I've, I've seen this with other people is it, it waves through you. Like it's got a weird, you know, how like usually you just like get sick and then you get better and maybe you get like a little worse and a little better, but like I would have day a day where I was like, Oh, I'm totally fine. And it's, I, it's gone. And then I would be totally sick the next day. It was very weird. I just think it's a weird thing. It's like this mutating weird thing that I would have preferred to not have in my body, right. but, but I'm fine. You know, I feel good. And I don't think, I don't think my malaise is COVID related, but who knows? I could use that as an excuse too. <laughs> what was the, what was the film that you lost in New Mexico? Uh, it was uh, an adaptation of a book called how to blow up a pipeline. And it was like a, um, a climate change thriller is what I will describe it as. And I was, I didn't, I was sort of, it was somewhat cameo. Like it wasn't a huge thing. It was basically like the only adult I'm like the a FBI agent kind of bad guy, not totally bad guy, but pretty bad guy in a group of like young eco-terrorists. <laughs> So you, are you trying to thwart the eco-terrorists or you would have? Yes, been? I'm trying to. Thwart them. Yes. But in this story, they're kind of the heroes. Right. So I'm the like man. I'm the government. You're the man. I'm the man. <laughs> were you were you devastated that you lost it or was it just sort of like one of those? It's covid. 
forget. Yeah. I mean, it is, I, I certainly wasn't as devastated as Bradley who was like literally in the creative joy of his life playing Scrooge in his favorite production from London of a Christmas Carol to sold out thousands of people cheering him every day and snow being dropped from the sky and Christmas cheer and all of his, right. I mean, everyone was coming to see the show for Christmas. We had built our Christmas around it. We had people coming in from out of town. I mean, it was like, rug like like literally you go to work and it's over um but no i wasn't uh i was lucky i was thinking about it i was lucky that i wasn't more integral to this piece like that it was kind of a i, I wouldn't say cameo but like they had sort of you know it's one of those where you're like yeah maybe like it's not the lead it was a fun little cool thing with a cool director and a cool cast but i wasn't creatively like devastated luckily because um but it's never easy I was also going to take Iris with me and we were going to have sort of like a vacation there. It was right before Christmas day. So there was that kind of stuff that was, but whatever, you know, it is, it is, we are living in a time where, I mean, maybe all of us have gotten used to like, you can't, it's all up in the air, you know, it's all up in the air and um, you just kind of got to be open to things changing at the last minute. I mean, I am by the time you, this runs, I would assume it, I'm in a movie that's, I don't think it's been publicly said is going to be at South by Southwest because I think they're waiting to announce their programming, but you know, we're all planning to go, but I'm also totally aware of what just happened at uh, Sundance where they were going to be live and they pulled it. So you just don't know, you know, you're just like, I don't know. I don't know what's happening. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what <laughs> The movie for South by Southwest is I Love My Dad. Yeah. It's on IMDb. So you and Patton Oswalt. Yes. I play this kid, James Morrissini's mom. Uh, and James, you know, I've been offered something called Shithouse last year. This kid, Cooper, Cooper Rafe, who also was writing, directing and starring in his right. And that was supposed to be at South by Southwest. It was, and it, it was, and it actually won, but we weren't. Right. So part of why I said yes to this is I had such a wonderful, it's, it's kind of fun. I mean, it's not like super challenging to play the mom and everything, but <laughs> when you're working with um, these young, cool, like really creative, uh, smart, funny uh, writers and director, actor hybrids, um, it's uh, yeah, it was, it was, they both were really cool experiences and, and both going to South by Southwest. So we'll see what happens this year, but yeah, Patton is the, my ex-husband and he's um, it's a really interesting, funny comedy based on a true story of James's own father catfishing him on Facebook because they were estranged. And so he, pretends he's this young woman who in the movie is played um, by Claudia Saluski, who's uh, a YouTuber and wonderful actress doing her first lead role in a movie. And um, it's just this very absurd, weird, cringy, dark comedy, which is my favorite kind of thing to do. <laughs> there you go. Well, I hope you get to actually go to South by Southwest this time. I do too. We'll see. But I'm also not attached to it. You know what I mean? I'm just like, I feel terrible. It was funny. I was watching season two of Cheer. Have you watched it yet? No. Oh, it's so good. Have you watched season one? No. Oh my God, Mark. What the hell? Cheer? Cheer? It's like one of the greatest sports documentaries ever made. It's um, the one where everybody knows your name. No, that's, that's the no cheer. Okay. Cheer. I'm sorry to admit this. Cause now everyone listening to this will think I'm an idiot. No, but I appreciate the, uh, the recommendation. Never even heard of it? 
I don't know it. What's it on? At Netflix is like the number one show okay. on Netflix. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> it's because won, I, like, it's because I have year, brain fog and seclusion. The first year won like Emmys and they became huge huge celebrities it was this weird and and, part, and when jerry one of the most famous of the cheer squad is actually in jail in chicago right now for sexual assault of minors it turns this there's it's very dark it's the same guys who make um last chance you and they make okay sort of the most incredible sports docs you'll ever see they are incredible filmmakers who manage like find subject matters and edit them in a way that it is like better than any movie you could see. And season two was literally, in my opinion, just as powerful, if not more so than season one. And I, um, and, but, but both that and last chance you, which I, I really love were interrupted by COVID, but the, the cheer interruption is it's really painful because cheer squads only work towards one competition in Daytona. So they only have one competition. They're not like basketball teams where they're playing all year. Right. They, and they, and half the team was obviously like graduating or leaving. And so they just never get to have anything. And it was just like this, like when you, you think about other people's losses, like young people who, you know, whatever my kids in college, my stepkids, it's like my stepdaughter has been in COVID for two years. Her junior year of high school is when it started. And now she's a freshman in college. And there's just like this incredible interruption and disorganization of their lives. And so, you know, if I can't go to South by Southwest, my point is it's not going to kill me. Although if I was James Morrissey and I made that movie, I would be very, very upset about it. Like, you know, for a lot of the, a lot of the people who got into Sundance this year, I, I'm good friends with a couple of people who had, you know, huge professional breaks. And you think this is it. This is my moment. I'm going to go to Sundance. And it's right. just not the same virtual. It's like just completely not the same. So, you know, but that's what we're all dealing with, you know, and adjusting and losing. And, you know, how are you doing in all of it? I haven't even talked to you. Oh. That's all right. I was going to say Shithouse uh, won the, what, the grand jury prize. And then people didn't, it just wasn't on people's radars as much when it came out because of, you know, you don't get to get that, you know, public momentum and word of mouth and all that exactly. coming out of the festival. Exactly. So, yeah, it's like, did it, did the tree fall in the forest if no one saw it? Although I will say Cooper Rafe got greenlit for a second film that is fantastic that got into Sundance that won't actually be seen either. Poor Cooper, <laughs> but I'm not worried about him. He's a, he, he made, uh, he made shithouse for like under a hundred thousand dollars, like basically just pulling in, you know, favors and young artists and promoting them so that they would do the next level thing for less. And he created a, I will, I will say that movie is wonderful. I mean, it's a great coming of age movie and he's just in, stupidly impressive. So I'm not worried about him, but I can't imagine how disappointing that is. You know, I have right. another friend who made a movie called holler that also was at, uh, I think at South by Southwest and, um, you know, she just got an independent spirit award nomination, Nicole, uh, Rigel and, but like these indie movies that aren't, 
that somehow, you know, that, that are lower budget or they're very hard to find now. I mean, like you were saying, the buzz doesn't come out of the festival. Right. And people are watching everything on TV and there's so many series now that people like so many serious storytellers have moved into television. And so there's so many great limited series and, so yeah, the, the little independent films are better films, than movies most of the time. I mean, they just yeah. So it's hard to get those little movies looked at, you know. Yeah, but I do think those people. The great thing is, like, the industry sees it, and the industry can give them more work. And the industry, there's always right. like the difference between. I feel like most of my career has been seen by industry people and not mainstream people, and it's allowed me to like have a good career, even though I haven't been on a massive hit show or anything, you know, like the hits I've been in are the small ones that I'm lucky enough, you know, filmmakers and creators are seeing, which keeps me working. Transparent was pretty big though. I mean, it certainly was groundbreaking in terms of, Oh, she's shaking her head. People. Well, it wasn't uh, I mean, I mean, it wasn't numbers wise. I'll just tell you it was artistically. I mean, it's funny because your honor is the number one show in Showtime's history of a first season, which again is interesting being in a show in COVID because I mean, if I was probably out and about when that came out, which if I was ever out and about when that came out, it was in a mask. So no one would know who I was anyway. And we didn't have a premiere that was live. So even though a lot of people saw it, you didn't like feel it. I definitely felt the power of transparent amongst, you know, a certain group of people for sure. I mean, obviously it was like Golden Globe when it was incredible. I think it's probably, I mean, not because I'm in it. I just think it's probably one of the best television series ever made. I really do. I think it's extraordinary work and groundbreaking, but in terms of like millions of people, um, I think it always landed sort of where the curb, like that sort of, you know, better things, 2 million, whatever. I mean, it's just not a huge, it's not a numbers um, show. I mean, in LA, people are used to recognizing people, but do, when you're out and you're not wearing a mask outside, do people recognize you and say, Oh, there's, you it, know. it's one of those things where when the show was on, it's like, I don't feel it now, to be honest with you. I mean, I know it happens and like, I'm completely, I'm probably like overly, you know, on like, I don't, I'm so far removed from feeling like a known person that people have to remind me ever that I am because I don't consider myself that at all. And yet, of course, like people recognize me or all, you know, like, but I don't, when transparent was on, I would get stopped a lot more. Um, I don't get stopped. I, I can't remember the last time someone stopped me and said anything to me. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't have that sense. I remember when transparent came out, I felt like everywhere I went, people were like recognizing me. <laughs> I think you it? and I had coffee in, in West LA and, and a young woman came up to you. That was like years ago, but I think it's when, yeah, when it was ago. on, it's kind of like yeah. when people are consuming something, you're very much in their, in their minds. And so I would go to New York, I'd be stopped on the street. I would travel in the airport. I would be like, you know, and it, it just doesn't, yeah, I don't feel like that. And I remember my agent saying, cause I, when I was talking about your honor, I was like, they were like, yeah, it's just like, you're never, I was at a, I was at like a, um, night before party for the Emmys. And I was with Bradley who I'm sure was there for whatever he was. Oh yeah. He was nominated for Handmaid's Tale. And I introduced myself to this woman as his wife 
And that was it. And we just, you know, talked and I left and was in another part of the party. And she just came up to me like, why didn't my husband told me that you were the detective on your honor? Why didn't you have his <laughs> wife? Like, you're blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, I forget. Like, I, I think also being with a partner who's more famous than you, you really forget that you have. Yeah, I relate to that also. So really? I do. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I mean, that's a whole other subject, but, uh, you know, my, my kids and you have something in common and that they're both used to uh, a parent being on the radio all the time. Yes. So, yes. Yes. So my wife does NPR. She's the WBEZ morning edition host. And, you know, just like on when they're, you know, I mean, one of them's in college now, but you know, they just, she'd just be like talking while they'd be making breakfast. They completely. Yeah, it's like there's out. mom. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. I, that's what it is. So you sort of start, I, I just don't, I'm, I'm just always like, not, that's not the zone that I'm in. And, and I forget ever to give myself any credit for <laughs> being in things that people might recognize me from, or, you know, appreciate, appreciate. Well, you're in the same field though, not up for the same roles. So. Yeah. And he's, you know, been around so much longer than I have. And, you know, I, I didn't move, you and I've talked about this, but I didn't move to LA till I was 40. Like I didn't even start this journey until so late. And he's been here and doing incredible work since, I mean, he's just, and he's a guy and he's, you know, and he's white (laughs) (laughs) and he's great at what he does. So he's, I mean, he's not like, it's, you know, we always talk about, he felt like this last year, actually, he started to feel slightly when handmaids came out season four, um, he started to feel too recognized. He was getting bothered a lot in New York. And I mean, not bothered. It's just like, there's this fine balance. It's like you want everyone to know who you are, but you also want to be able to walk around and not feel like you're being looked at, you know? And I always say to people, right. like, oh, they're like, isn't it fun? I'm like, I don't know. Do you like being stared at or talked about? Do you like having your picture taken? Like nobody does, but it seems like we think that that would be so fun. Like our image of that is like, Oh, that would be so fun. It's like, no, you're self-conscious all the time. You know, nobody, I mean, I love that. I don't even think any more than anyone would ever know who I am because it was weird when I thought everybody did all the time. (laughs) I was like, are they looking at me? Are they talking about me? I was like, no, but I was so freaked out because I was like on this thing that everyone was like, And people were very emotional about it too. I mean, people can be very intense in the world, you know? Um, but no, I, yeah. Yeah, They think they know you and you don't want that. So yeah, he's, he's a shining object. I'm just a sidekick. (laughs) Well, that's the, uh, that's one of the beauties of, uh, radio and that people know your name and your voice, but they don't necessarily recognize you walking down the street. So like, I mean, so, so your father is, I'm just going to say this for anyone who doesn't know is John records Landecker. I grew up listening to him on WLS and then he later became a colleague and friend because we would go to the screening room together and he would, he and I would both review movies and I'd review him for the Tribune and he was reviewing them on the radio and he's still, uh, you know, he's done WGN and lots of other stuff since then. So, um, still on the air at night. Yeah, he's still on. Right. So you grew up with that. So you already sort of knew what it was like having some level of fame. in your. I mean, I did. I I did feel like we had a level of fame because my last name was very recognizable. Like if I ever said Landecker and I was in Chicago, there was definitely a, a point where he was where there wasn't a single person who didn't ask me if I wasn't related to him. I mean, it would you know, it was it was 
it was, and I, and we would get special treatment at certain things, you know, concerts. And, you know, I felt very, I loved that I had a celebrity dad and we would, it was always funny. We'd be at a restaurant and when he would like sign the check or give the credit card, Oh my God. Ah, la, la. Like you said, <laughs> nobody knows till they know your name, you know? Um, and then they recognize the voice and they're like, Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. And it would be this really fun. I loved every second of it. I mean, I thought, and I think that's also why I don't feel competitive with Bradley. I'm, I'm a huge, I love being associated and not having the pressure, (laughs) you know, it's like you be the one it's so much more fun. And then I feel all special, but I don't have to like, I don't know, deal with the pressure of that. And I'm sure there is a certain pressure to that. And, um, and he, um, it was funny talking about your wife being on the air. We, during, new year's because we were all like staying home and not doing anything. We literally just sat with the kids. We'd cleared COVID enough that they could come. And we sat around the kitchen table, playing cards, listening to him do his show on GN, uh, where he plays on new year's. He plays, um, like seventies music the whole time. And we just listened to him for like four hours and it was so fun. Um, it's so incredible now with like the internet, you literally, we literally just said like Alexa play WGN from Chicago and it comes up over your speaker at home. It's just like so crazy. But, um, yeah, I had a certain level of, I remember I was dating, I won't say who, but a famous person. And I was at a dinner party with a lot of famous people and I was not famous at all at the time. And one of the people at the dinner party was like this big producer was like, why are you, how are you so comfortable? Like you just seem completely comfortable. And I was like, which is kind of a condescending question to somebody, but right. I was like, why aren't you more intimidated by our fabulous? Yeah, life? exactly. But I was like, Oh, it was uh, I kind of grew, I certainly, you know, yes, of course it was a local version, but I grew up around that kind of, you know, recognition and fame and and what that felt like. So I, I don't think I, I, I don't get as intimidated. Um, it's funny though, because I was an intern at Steppenwolf theater you know, it's that thing where like, whatever was a big deal to you is still really intimidating. And I just got asked to do a reading of a play with like half of the ensemble that's out here. And I'm so nervous about it because Mm. to me, those are the people that I like idolized and grew up. Like, it was just funny. Like, I'm like, whatever it is that triggers that response in you, where you're like a nervous weirdo, that's what's happening to me. (laughs) Cause I always wanted to be on stage at Steppenwolf, but I, and I, I was an understudy for a show there, but I wasn't like considered an actor there. I was a director's assistant and, you know, it was just, it's just funny. Like I've had, like now they're like letting me read the lead in a play with like some of my favorite, I'm just like, wow, that's, that's a bigger deal to me than like anything else that you could offer me. Is this something that could lead to you being on stage at Steppenwolf? I, you know what I didn't ask, I'm assuming that it's something there might be considering right now. It's just like a reading at someone's house, but like, why do it if you're not considering it, I guess. But, um, I didn't ask cause I don't even want to know. I was like, I don't want to know what it's for. You know, I'm just going to go in and do this reading and reconnect with these people. But it's like going back to high school, but now you're popular. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you want to come back to Chicago and be on stage at Steppenwolf in the lead role? Yes, I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah, I would love it. I mean, there's been actually a couple of things through the years where something like that was possible and the timing. I mean, I've been waiting for sort of my Q 
kid to be old enough. And now I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm empty nest enough that I would want to go spend a couple of months there. And it would certainly be a very Oprah full circle moment for me in a very profound way. did a lot of roles sort of that I, that other performers might not be so comfortable doing. And you sort of always had this kind of really good natured, but fearless sort of sense about you, where you would just sort of take the, you know, the, the Tracy Letts role, you know, early on and, you know, your, your, your dad watching you doing, you know, nudity and violence and whatever else. And, and it seems like you, you've been game for a lot of situations in acting and I felt comfortable with that. Or relatively. Yeah. Although it's funny. I just turned down a part in the movie in a horror movie where I knew what would be required. As I get older, I'm a little actually less game because I'm like, you know, I think that's probably normal. Um, like I don't really want to have my guts ripped out and like masturbate on camera and cry. Like I, you know, and I've probably, was that all supposed to happen at the same time. Yeah. And I've done all of that separately, but, um, <laughs> I have done all of that separately. And yet I'm just kind of, I feel like, and it's funny because I thought about this. I I could be, you know, maybe misreading myself. And I really do consider myself kind of very mainstream. My tastes are very mainstream. Like what I consume, you know, I dress very mainstream. I live in a mainstream neighborhood. I'm very bougie, basic, like in a lot of ways. Um, and I'm not difficult like to work with. I'm very, very easy. I'm not a, like a moody person on set. I'm always, you know, I'm sort of my reputation. I, I think if you asked anyone, they'd be like, oh, Amy's always in a good mood. Like, I'm just not a hard person. And yet my, though, if you judged me by my roles, you might think I was completely insane, you know, or like completely <laughs> wild or completely out there. And I'm so not, but for whatever reason, whatever my inner stuff is, I've been willing. I mean, what I am, I guess, is like a very open book person. So maybe that's why I'm game. Like, you know, but I have really realized as I've gotten older that I do want to, I'm not as game to like wreck myself emotionally or expose myself physically. A lot of the things that I used to do, I can't imagine doing now. Like I wouldn't be naked on camera and have sex in front. Like I, it's crazy to me, but I did it. <laughs> <laughs> Were there scenes or roles you did where, where you sort of, which sort of made you think, okay, this is like crossing a line for me and I can't do this anymore. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I've told, have I, I've sure I've told you through our friendship, the story of house of lies. We talked about right. it. Yeah. That's the one with I Don mean, Cheadle, right? Right. And I, and I was like, I left that set and I was like, I'm just not the actress to do this kind of thing. And then there was, which was on camera sex and and some nudity. And, um, I just didn't like it. I freaked the, I just freaked out and, um, I told, told my agents, I'm never doing that again. And then, um, you know, they, I got a audition for something called transparent that said on camera, sexual nudity required. And I turned it down because of this experience and Jill Soloway, who's now Joey Soloway, um, 
had seen me and enough things and felt like I really was Sarah Pfefferman that they asked if I would have lunch with them. And we had this whole conversation about why I said no. And I said, cause I'm not comfortable with on-camera sexual nudity. So then during transparent, the compromise was I would either be nude or I would have sex, but I wouldn't do both at the same time. But then when we were in the woods in season three and I had a storyline where I was into BDSM, which was very uncomfortable for me, it just was, I'll be honest. I never really felt comfortable in that storyline. And I was tied, I was in the woods and we had, we were at a women's festival and we had a bunch of background that was all like real queer BDSM people in full BDSM gear. And I, yeah, I, I said they were in a wide and I just said to Joey, like, I'm uncomfortable. And, you know, like, so we came in close. So I felt less exposed. Um, and it was funny because like one of my least favorite moments of that didn't make it to the final cut, but then we did a big Q and a, um, and on this huge screen in LA and as an outtake, they showed that (laughs) scene, and I was just like, um, Yeah, I learned. I don't think I was like as open as I presented myself on that show, for sure. I mean, there's other actors on that show who have no problem uh, being naked and doing whatever. And it doesn't feel like a push. And I always felt like I was out of my comfort zone and and in some ways too much, you know, then I would want to do it again. Um, is it possible they felt the same way, but just insur- no, I think, no, it was like almost Don and I had this conversation where he's like, you know, it's incredible. Some actor it's just people have different sensibilities, you know, like, no, I don't think they felt that way. I think some people are just more comfortable in their skin or maybe don't have as much trauma associated with certain situations. It's just not, he was like, you know, you just don't know till you do it. Like you have some people who are like game and, and, and I, I just knew that I, it just was always, there was a scene where I turn on Jiz Lee. I mean, who was an actor that I did uh, a, a storyline with and they were in real life, a BDSM actor, and they were into that culture. They were really wonderful and kind, nothing wrong with any of the, you know, it's just your own. Right. It was, it just, it just made me uncomfortable. And I went home after a day of shooting and, broke down and they were like, that was one of the greatest days of my life. And I was like, that's just the way people are built. <laughs> you know. And, um, and I don't, I like being pushed, but I think as I became a mom, I mean, I hate to say this cause it's so fucking gender normative and like boring, but when I became a mom and a wife to someone that I really, you know, Bradley sort of changed what I want to do too. Not that he cares or I can't, you know, it's more just like, I feel more private. If that makes right. sense, you know, and I, I've had Iris promise me to never watch transparent, like even after I'm dead, because I wouldn't want them to see it. So she hasn't seen it at all. And never will. And never oh. will. According to the pinky promise that was made. To me. <laughs> <laughs> how, are you, how are you, by the way, with starting the finale singing? Oh, ah. That was a mess. That was almost worse than the sex scenes. I was worse. <laughs> I cried. That's what I mean. It's like, people are like, you're so fearless. I'm like, no, I'm not. I just like do it anyway. And then I have a total meltdown afterwards. Um, truly. I had a couple meltdowns during that. I was terrified. Um, utterly terrified. And I, but did it anyway. <laughs> had you sung publicly before? 
I did a play in Chicago. Yeah. I mean, I sang in high school and I did a play in Chicago called El Paso Blue, I think was the name of it. It was like a combination of next theater and Teatro Vista. And um, Mm. I was the lead and she sang, but I literally had two reviews that came out. One saying I should cut an album and one saying I clearly was no singer. And I knew early on that like, I don't know if I can or can't, you know what I mean? Like, um, I'm certainly not a great singer. I was told enough by Ann Previn, who was our producer for the, and by the way, I did not know that an album was made, uh, which I bought from target, which I'm holding up now, but we there's vinyl of this wow. soundtrack, which I did not know. And you're on the um, first song. Like you start singing the first the song and you know, she felt like I had a great voice. And then my kid was like, mom, stop singing in the shower. Like, you just don't, <laughs> you just don't, everyone's got an opinion about it. I don't have like, you know, maybe some people think I can sing and other people can't think I don't think I can sing, but I just certainly don't feel comfortable singing. So um, during COVID you didn't like get out garage band and just start, you know, double tracking and writing. Songs. No, I don't think I can sing. I mean, what was funny is, is the big thing that everyone was saying is like, Oh my God, Sarah Pfefferman isn't going to have any sex scenes in the musical phenomenon. Like you finally can stop doing this thing that you're so freaked out about. And then I was like, but you're going to sing. And I was like, that's more vulnerable than the sex scenes. I was like, I just can't seem to do anything on this show. And now of course I miss it. It's like, you'll see when you watch cheer that there's, there's something incredible about being pushed as far as you can go. Right. I mean, right like discomfort is great. I mean, of course it, I could weep. I would kill to be able to, you know, be challenged like that again. But at the time I was absolutely petrified. And this, my, the guy who plays my son's in the back of the car going, you sound great. And I also, when we actually shot it, although I was singing to a track, so, you know, I, it would, I knew it would be fine, but I had to sing it live with just the track in my ear with the kids in the back of the car. And I had the flu. So I was cracking. I just sounded awful. And I was like, I was, I was, that was one day where I would say, I don't think people would be like, Amy's like the best mood person. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely was cranky, very cranky. (laughs) So have you been, have you still do been doing voiceover stuff and did that sort of ramp up during the pandemic when you couldn't be on set doing other things? I will say, you know, I, my commercial voiceover career has dried up much to my dismay. I still audition for it a lot, but I'm not getting it as much as I used to, but then I've been compensated by this lovely slight surge in my animation career. Right. I saw those um, careers. So yeah, I've been gotten to do a couple of things over the pandemic. And I was really lucky that I was given one of the leads in the crudes TV animated series, like right at the beginning of the pandemic. So I was, I've done that. And, you know, when we started, it was every week. Now I go maybe twice a month and get to work on a really fun animated series where I'm playing the mom of this caveman family. And it's, I mean, that's where I started obviously with my dad on the radio and, and growing up in studios in Chicago and, you know, you don't have to be naked and you don't have to like, you, you, you are so safe and it's doesn't matter what you look like or how old you are. It's the greatest job. So I will always want to do it. I'm always game to do it. Um, it's, I really lucked out, uh, with that during the pandemic, the first like six months when we were all really locked up at home, like I was able to 
play and be a part of this cast where we would do it all by zoom. Now we're sort of back in studios and it's more isolated again, but and with the irony, we're more isolated and we're in studios because right. at the time we would just do it on a big zoom meeting and read with each other. But that was a real, that's, that was, that's been a real dream of mine since I started in VO was to do an animated series. So I feel really lucky and she's really fun. Like being a cave person is very physical and silly and it's a joy, you know, do, do you feel like that was a direct offshoot of the commercial stuff you were doing? Yeah. I mean, I do think the on-camera profile helped the animation part. The irony, like that the commercial stuff has gotten less since I've gotten more known is weird to me, but I don't know. Like maybe I just don't, I don't know. I, I, I have no, you know, I just sort of keep showing up and I've been lucky enough in my career that there's always something going like I've just been very fortunate since I started in Chicago. I would do like live industrials. I would do voiceover. I would do theater. I would do TV. I would do commercials. Like, so now I'm like, I don't really can't explain it. It's not that I'm not interested in commercial VO. It's just that it hasn't landed. Like I, you know, was the voice of Hallmark and Cymbalta and a bunch of big campaigns for years. And that was part of my, but I also think it's fair and probably true that then you be, sort of become as an on-camera known as sort of an on-camera actor. And they use like voiceover actors for that stuff. But for animation, they'll often want a, a, an on-camera actor to do an animated voice because they consider it more of a performance. Right. So when I started to become known for on-camera, my animation work definitely picked up, but I think my ease with it and the way that I sort of love it and fell into it and wasn't uncomfortable around it definitely is part of my voiceover tradition for sure. Was there like one line that you said more than any other in your voiceover career? Where does depression hurt? Everywhere. That would be it. I did it for like <laughs> 10 years. That's some, that's Cymbalta, I assume. That's Cymbalta. And it was a pretty iconic. That's not, that's not Hallmark. No. Oh, that was, um, I, I, I wasn't as prolific, but um, send a card. They'll never forget. You remembered. I remember that tag. And you probably like remember to send people cards all, all the time now. <laughs> yeah. do, they, like, do, do they like give you like. Oh, and then I did a campaign for wine that went for the wine. Like, like, what do you call it when it's like not just one type of wine, but like, you know, the wine council like wine industry. Yeah. Yeah. Napa wines or something. Uh, and that like that. was a uh, wine. What are you saving it for? Did that for years. <laughs> <laughs> you never forget. Do you use these lines in real life? Like, do you go, you know, like, I don't know if we should serve this wine. What are we saving it for? No, but your voice doesn't squeak like that when you say that. <laughs> that's, why you, that's why you're the pro and I'm just sitting here doing my podcast. So <laughs> Yeah, no, I, the only thing I do is like a parlor trick a lot is the Julia Roberts sound alike, because I used to do that and people want me to do, you know, I, I would do like some of her post ADR stuff if she couldn't show up. I actually finally worked with her this last year. I was played her best friend on a series called gaslight. It was a really quick guest star, but everyone's like, are you going to tell her? Are you going to tell her? She had like no idea what I was even talking about. I was like, never. Really? Yeah. She's she like, she didn't really know. I mean, you know, she's too famous and busy to care. And I was like, yeah, no, I got paid a little bit here and there to like sound like you when you can't go in and do a line here and there. It was like a huge deal in my family. Like you're Julia Roberts sound alike. Um, but people will ask me to do the, like, you know, I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy 
asking him to love her. You know, I'll do that at parties, but, um, and sometimes people want the fair balance at parties. Like when you're like, you know, tell your doctor right away. If you, you know, like the quick <laughs> talk. So, which is like, part, I don't know if you remember that movie sideways, but the lead, of course, yeah, he does it at the bar. And I was like, yeah, that really happens where people like want find out you do something like do it, you know, and you're like, just do some stupid voiceover quotes. But, but I got a lot of mileage out of the, like uh, that Cymbalta won a lot of awards. It was one of the first, big pharmaceutical campaigns that was like emotional and about antidepressants when they were just kind of coming out. And so that, that, that was a huge part of my life for a decade. I was going to say you did that for about 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. It was a big deal. I mean, financially it was a big change for me and it paid for, I mean, it was just like, it was a huge deal. Amelia Rosner was my creative on that. And I've always told her, like, if I ever want to if I ever won an award, I would thank her because I wouldn't have been able to afford to hang in here as long as I have if it wasn't for that campaign. Well, I profiled you for the Tribune when you were the uh, you, were, you were playing Paul Reiser's wife on the Paul oh, Reiser yeah. show. And it yeah. turned into a story about like the gift of failing at a higher level because the show had been like canceled by the time your story came out. <laughs> right. It was on, the second episode was on and then they, they canceled it. And I'd already interviewed you and we'd, you know, we'd like, I think we'd met at Steppenwolf and walked over to Pete's and, you know, yep. watch you, you uh, steal artificial sweeteners. And, um, <laughs> yeah. and then, and so, yes, yeah, so, yeah, I think you had, you had a funny line in here where you said something like, I'm kind of new to this failing on a massive level, but it was really a very upbeat story, actually. I love the way you turned that. I loved that story. And it was such a cool way to take what was happening. It actually really helped me. Like, I know I probably oh, said it, good. but but it really did. It was like, yeah, no, I didn't realize like it's a it's a it's a part of succeeding that you would fail at higher and higher levels. <laughs> I've been reading like a bunch of these memoirs. Like I just, I found Charles Grodin's memoir in a used bookstore and I read it. And it's amazing to me how much of it is him, you know, failing at things and being upfront about it, but just like doing these projects for years and years and years that don't happen. And, you know, he finally gets the heartbreak kid and then it's years until he, you know, people see him in anything again, you know, and it's yeah. just, and, and, and it's, it's actually good for me because I sort of felt like when I left the tribune, not that everyone's listening to hear me share my stories, but you know, I felt like, oh, I, I, you know, you leave the Tribune and, and I, you know, I was already pretty advanced in, you know, my career. Um, and, you know, you still like, not everything pans out the way you think it's gonna. And at some point I'm like, I'm not at an age where I should be failing anymore. And then you, but you really, you read this stuff. I'm like, no, that's, that's all. It means you're trying, Absolutely. you know, it means, it means that you're attempting new things and that's right. what make keeps you fresh. And it's, so it's actually heartening to sort of read stories of and hear about people because most things don't, you know, become most things don't blow up, you know, you never right. know. No, you don't. And I, I mean, it was funny. I will say when there's a producer, a big Hollywood producer named Sue Nagel, who saw the, the pilot of transparent and she came up to me at a party and she said, you know how you always think the thing's a thing and it's never the thing. This is the thing. And she was right. Like that was one of those rare times where your expectations are met, you know, but I was in a streetcar named Desire as an understudy when I was 27 and Herb Cupstant said a star was born and literally nothing happened until I was 40 that of, of any great significance. Um, and, and I, but I also know that walking through that part and walking through that experience sort of laid the groundwork 
for my ability to do a lot of stuff and realize what I was capable of. So you need, I mean, I really, I, my first lead at the Goodman, which was, um, Oh, Zoot Suit. I got a bad review in, um, the wall street journal. And I was utterly, I cannot tell you how devastated I was. I still remember the review. Amy Landecker doesn't have enough passion to incite a PTA coffee. Um, and I, wow. and I was, I mean, I've never read reviews since maybe occasionally, but I'm really skittish. I hardly ever will read anything. Cause I had such a meltdown around it and I was sure I was never going to work again. And then Bob falls put me in blue surge. And I was like, insane. And I was like, why would you cast me? He's like, I don't care about reviews. Like, like I was like, Oh, like, you know, or that I had been in a failed sitcom. It was like, well, what we sort of were talking about is I had proved I could be cast as a lead in a network sitcom, you know? So you just don't, you see it in one way, but the world can right. in a completely different way. And you don't even realize, um, you know, like that you have moved forward and that everyone's not always going to love what you're doing. I mean, you know, especially in an art form, there's a huge, I mean, like, like the reviews I got for singing, one person was like, she should cut an album. One person was like, Amy Landegger's no singer, you know, and what I, Bob Dylan. (laughs) And what I decided is like that it does mean I'm doing something that has some real opinion to it. If, if there's a disparity of opinion around it, like if I'm, if, if it's, you know, I did work with an actor on in, on stage and I can't remember his name, but he was like, I've never gotten a bad review, but I wouldn't say he was like the most exciting actor I've ever worked with. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's like, yeah, you could just sort of like do the same and be safe. But if you're going to take risks, there are going to be people, there's going to be huge failures and huge successes. I mean, that was also the same time when I went to visit my hus- ex-husband moved out officially and I was going through a divorce and I was like, well, this is the end, you know, this is like the bottom. And then it was just this wonderful period of rebuilding, you know? Right. So, well, yeah. Well, you know, in terms of the reviews and stuff, it's like, if I think about like my favorite foods or my favorite movies, they're all things that significant portions of the population do not like, <laughs> like, like if I say, Oh my God, you know, I just, I, I, you know, I, if, when I go get sushi, I love uni, the sea urchin, that's delicious. You know, most people are like, Ugh, you know, but it's great if you like it. And you know, it's great if you like Harold and Maude, but there's some people who are like gone in the first 10 seconds of that movie. So Harold and Maude, it's so funny. You mentioned that scared the shit out of me growing up. I have never been more freaked out. I think I was too young. I'd love to watch it again. Cause I just, it was like a profoundly terrifying experience for me. Wow. I was so not ready for that movie. I, um, I I saw that movie when I was young and I, and I was so kind of the balance of how dark it was and how funny it was really was sort of defining for me. And, and I, after I, I left the paper, I started, a, I had a, for a couple of years, I was running a series at the music box called, is it still funny? And <laughs> once a month you'd show a movie to see how it held up. And I was terrified to rewatch Harold and Maude because I hadn't seen it since college. And I thought, well, at least if I see it with like a couple hundred other people, you know, they'll be laughing at the right moments and stuff again. And it'll feel like better than if I sit there on my couch. And it was wonderful. It was awesome. I bet it did hold up. I mean, that movie's kind of brilliant. I just, well, it was beyond me. I mean, well, we should have a screening of it again. And then, you okay. Can- Okay. <laughs> and, I'll, and then I'll interview on stage afterwards about whether you're over the trauma of Melvin Maud. I actually am writing a script. I wrote a script about an older woman who has an affair with a younger guy. And I 
if we've been talking about like if it got made how to do it so that you don't you aren't like cringing about it and i was like thinking about how cringe can work in its favor though and was thinking a lot about harold and mod and how right. that was part of the she's not I, almost 80 in your script i bet no no <laughs> Just you market it as as somewhere between Harold and Maude and Licorice Pizza comes in. Oh my God, Licorice Pizza! How the hell is that okay? I'm just like so confused. Did you see it? Yes. (laughs) I'm like so offended that nobody cares about first of all that incredibly racist Asian stuff going on. Like what the hell? And it's like, Oh, because it's him as the director. We don't care. Anyway, I shouldn't talk about that, but I, I, my husband and I, we were like, what is happening? And she's, it's okay. I just don't think if it was like a male female relationship that everyone would be okay with it. I mean, I just think it's fucked up personally. That's my, (laughs) well, they're not stupid or anything, but you know, no. Yeah. True. But I don't know. It was just, it was weird to me that it's everyone loves that. I I didn't get it. I don't think everyone loves it. Yeah. It's like, it's like sea urchin or something. Some people really like it. It's like, uh, like we're talking like Harold and it's not Harold. It's no Harold and Mott, but yeah, but well, anyway, it still could be helpful to you in your story because it's not, it's probably, they're probably older than in licorice pizza. No, you're right. Younger younger than younger than Maude. It's a good reference place. Yes. (laughs) So there you go. Um, what's it called for worse for worse? Um, I remember divorce. So anyway, when I, uh, when, when we talked also you, this was back when you could look someone up and their resume would be online. And so that was when I fixated on your last oh, line. monkey call. They said primitive sound emanation. It wasn't even just, it didn't even say monkey call. It said, pri- cause I had to ask you what that was. And it's, I know, I don't know why we changed emanation. it to primitive sound emanation. Yeah. Did I do it for you? I must've. Oh yeah. Yeah. But now you have to do it on the podcast. Cause okay, it's really loud though. That's okay. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> Yeah, that's still awesome. But nobody's. But, you've, but have you done it professionally yet? Like, has that, has that gotten you one nope. gig or line? No. The only thing I mean, that, got, the, me like, gig, the thing that got me a job, which was Paul Reiser, and Paul Reiser said this on a in an interview, which is with me, somewhat related. Is it was you? You talked about the fist in the mouth. Yes. yes. So I put. I have a. I have a big mouth, I guess, and. Richard Kind had said, say hi to Paul Reiser when you go in an audition. I said, Richard Kind says hi. And he goes, oh, have you ever done the fist and mouth trick for you? And I was like, no, what is that? And he goes, he can put his whole fist in his mouth. And I just did it in the (laughs) there. And um, we were talking about, I mean, he just couldn't believe that I had the nerve. So, um, but that came to my mind when you said that because both involve my mouth opening very wide. <laughs> it's a Chicago thing. Are you and Richard? I can't Kine. believe that was with you. That's such a small world. Oh, yeah, no, no, not only that, I have his quote right here. Uh, he was Paul Reiser remembering it. And he says it went all the way in because, Oh, it went all the way in because I have an enormous mouth. She's, she recalled over coffee in Lincoln park last week, the producers and he were like, Oh my God, she could put her fist in her mouth. How many times have people asked you to do that? I said, I didn't know I could do that. He said, wait a second. You literally just now tried to put your fist in your mouth. I was like, yeah. And then I put my legs behind my head. Oh, that's right. I put my legs behind my head. 
And then, but hold on, Paul Reiser called the fist and mouth moment, quote, one of those you had me at hello stories. <laughs> I said, this is him talking still. I said, wait a second. Not only A, can you do it, which is entertaining. B, you were game to do it. But C, you had the audacity to try it a sight unseen. So by the time she started reading the script, we said, well, this is just unnecessary. Isn't that amazing? See, and you're lucky this is an audio format, because otherwise I'd ask you to put your legs behind your head. Oh, she's doing it. Hold on. Wow. Yeah, I'm not warmed up, but yes, I could. That's pretty um, limber, though. Yeah, I'm limber. My mom's like a yoga teacher. So. But still, you're, you're, you've, you've still got it. Yes. So, so much, all that COVID soreness. I mean, you're, you know, you still. Yeah, limber. I'm still pretty limber. No, I do yoga a lot. So keeps me flexible. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So I think one of these things on you have to get that primitive sound. You got to get the monkey call in. I mean, if I you do an animated, that, I should at least tell the guys at uh, Cruz that yeah, I absolutely. That. That's an appropriate I mean, place to use it. It could either be the mom, or it could just be. Like or I could need, do the voice of monkey. the monkey. If they need a monkey. Yeah, if they need a monkey, we do have a bunch of punch monkeys, but they talk with punching. But I don't know if they do punch if they do monkey sounds. I'll have to find out. But I need to get on that because that's another something else I get paid for. So what? So what else is coming up for you? Well, you you told me some of it, but like, what else are you excited about doing? And you know, and and just I, I don't know. I mean, not to not to belabor the COVID stuff, but how much has this affected you and the business in ways that people don't understand? I mean, I, this last year, the first year I didn't feel it as intensely because I was in the middle of shooting your honor. And so I knew I had a job and I knew it just didn't feel that different. This lot, then the, then that came out and there was a very long time before season two of your honor was even talked about because it was a limited series and now they've turned it into a series and we are going to do a season two. So there was a long time and I did do a pilot, which did not go, but they held us for the whole year. So I was basically like sitting around kind of not, I felt like, Oh, this is what COVID felt like to other actors that I knew who just wondered if they might ever work again or whether any, I mean, I was doing a little bit of this and a little bit, I've gotten so spoiled that like I did a recurring on something called minx. I did a bunch of little things, but because none of it was like an ongoing big job, I felt like I wasn't very busy. And, um, but I've been reminded that that's kind of insane. I'm, a, I'm I, I think now I'm comparing a little high and I, you know, whatever. Um, but what happened is I wrote the whole, that I finally wrote a script that I've wanted to write for almost 10 years. And, um, you know, I, I think that if there hadn't been all that space, I would never have finished it, you know? And I, so I'm grateful I think the biggest effect it had was that I had to find other things to do with my time. I mean, even before COVID, it's not like I was being creative all day, but I had like a, you know, I'd go to the gym and I would go like, there was like things you did outside of your house that structured your day as an actor who's freelancing, you know, I would take acting classes. I would do like, whatever it was, I have like things I do. And then a lot of that went away with COVID and so it was like, how do I feel spent, you know, in some way I have all this creative energy. I get really depressive. If I'm not doing something, I get really like, like, what's the point? You know, I can, I just get restless easily. And so I, I took a screenwriting class by this. And that's actually not the class that I wrote the script in. I, I actually wrote a pilot 
for a TV series and pitched it. It didn't sell. Um, and it's not dead yet because we were selling it during COVID and they said, come back after COVID and we'll see. I don't know. But I started to go into that zone. So I guess what I'm excited about is that some something of that will get made, that I will make something that I wrote and I will direct it. And uh, yeah, I was going to ask you if you wanted to direct it also. I mean, I just actually and star. Yep. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about it. Uh, there's, that's been a big question about this project that I wrote because, you know, do I want to, the, the TV project I had not written for me to be in it. And I had, and I had an incredible cast. It was, in, I, I can't even go into it. It wouldn't be, but it was in development. The Duplass brothers, it had the most insane cast you've ever heard of, but it was a big expensive show and it had, and it was during COVID and, and it just didn't happen, which is fine. And I sort that's of put the, it. That's the one you were on hold with or the one that you wrote? I wrote both of these things, but okay. I wasn't, I didn't write myself in that. Okay. And I took the screenwriting class to see if I wanted to turn that pilot into a movie. And it opened up a, something I've always wanted to do, which was write a screenplay. I've never felt confident. I've written and sold a couple of pilots in, in my writing career, which also was a very late discovery and came out of my divorce, which was a specifically comedic divorce. Um, a lot of people, if you Googled me, you would see like I dated Larry David and my ex-husband was with a life coach. And if you just put those two characters opposing each other, you can see the comedy possibilities of what was going on in right. my life at the time. So I started and Larry suggested writing and was very supportive of it. And I started to kind of write about what I was going through and it went pretty well. Um, I sold a couple of shows. I sold a show to Amazon about me and my dad called daddy's girl. And I sold a show to FX called, um, angry MILF. Uh, <laughs> but, but that's the thing in Hollywood too, that again, it was sort of like the riser show where they didn't get made. So does that mean I'm a failure? But no, because you actually sold a script and then other people are asking, paying you to write and looking for, and you don't realize how many scripts are never made and you never see them. And it doesn't mean you suck. There's just a bunch of circumstances. And so I started this kind of side career of writing, but it's hard to stay focused and to really get it done. And the screenplay is like a beginning, middle and end. And I've always been afraid of that. So I finally did it. And then it was like, you know, imagining all these people playing the lead who I think would be better than me. And my agents were like, please don't give this away. Please don't give this away. And then I was like, oh, well, someone should direct me. But I'm like, I wrote it. I have the vision. I've directed stuff for Funnier or Die. And people were like, you should direct it. And I've been afraid to sort of take on all of that. And then I realized that's exactly what I need to do. And it's one thing for like Greta Gerwig to give away the lead of a movie that she wrote and she's directing because she's been the lead of a bunch of movies, but I've actually never been able to be the lead of a movie. I've been offered some, that's not to say I've, no one's ever offered it to me, but there's never been one that I wanted to do. And this would be one I want to do. So that's my dream. I don't know if it'll happen. It's looking good, but it's early and I don't know. Wow. That's what I'm excited about. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Though. That sounds totally worth getting excited about. That's, you know, it's like fulfillment of so many different things to yeah, and it's a, writer, and, and, a director and a performer. I mean, yeah. It, and I've been in these, like, I, it's funny because we started talking about these young kids who I was doing it with. And I was like, you know, why I can, I need to have, be fearless enough to walk through that as well. And not, you know, I mean, it's going to, it's scary to fail. And again, I mean, so appropriate that that's kind of the theme of this conversation as I walk into this commitment, if, if I figure out a way to get it done, which is, 
Yeah. And if it sucks, it sucks. Like it's not going to kill me. You know, it's not going to kill anybody. Like we all, you got to take a swing. So this is the, definitely the one I would swing at. Cause it's something I feel really, it's been gnawing at me and it's been really fun to write as opposed to like painful. It was really fun to write. So I have a feeling it could be really fun to shoot and I'm hoping I get to. Well, that'd be fantastic. I have to learn a lot. I mean, I have directed like little sketches and I was supposed to direct an episode of transparent, the final season, which changed into a musical that Joey's directed. But I, 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 it's something people have always told me. Um, like I did a movie with this guy, Jared Frieder, that's coming out. That's he's a wonderful I played choice of bonds. Mom, that's my new career is everyone's mom. Cool. Young people's mom. But (laughs) On set, he was like, I just always think like a director. And so people are like, you should direct. But I'm always like, I don't want to like, I don't want to make decisions. Like there's a lot of like bullshit, old female submissive crap in me that just needs to be told. Like you actually really do have an opinion and you want to express it. So let yourself do it. Don't worry about it. (laughs) You know what I mean? Well, it seems like there are more sort of, actresses if, if that's who are who've been taking sort of control of that and yes. saying all right i'm going to direct now so you've made yeah. Ellen hall and absolutely you know, just, just, you know oh my god and, by the way her whew, that directing debut is like insane i mean mine will not be that <laughs> mine will be much more like that just the visuals or i mean again though i know well enough too that she has an incredible dp like i know i know how to also I know how to ride a lot of coattails to make it look like, you know, I'm a genius. I'm not saying she did that, but I'm also like, but, but I know now too, that there's such a, it makes sense that women are great directors because it's a very collaborative communal. It can be a a very collaborative experience where, you know, you really gather an incredible community of people. And I, I think why I'd feel ready is I, I know enough artists now that will, that I know will do a lot of that work for me, you know, like that. I, I think the problem that I've seen too, for some new people is they're walking in with a DP. They don't know they're walking in with an AD. They don't know. And it's like a family. And sometimes those dynamics right. are great, but I know every, I, at this point I'm old enough. I've been around enough that I, there will not be one person in a major position that I haven't already worked with and know and feel totally comfortable with. So that's going to be a huge help to me as like a first time feature director. So call Joel and Ethan Cohen and say, Hey, what, what, what should I do with this scene? <laughs> Actually, I will say more at this point is Jay Duplass is my mentor. Yeah, there you go. And Joey saw he really too. actively is like, he's like my brother and he's always offering me advice. And he's like, I'll, he, he knows it, 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 that type of stuff is priceless when you have someone who's invested in you creatively and personally and wants to help. So I remember seeing those early Duplass brothers movies at Sundance. And so whenever I would see them in more sort of mainstream thing, like I knew them when, because you sort of relate to them when you see them in that sort of starting uh, projects. They just have a show coming out with Bridget Everett that was shot just outside of Chicago. Um, That's supposed to be incredible. It just got an incredible review in the New York times and it's on, look at me promoting, um, but it's a Duplass Brothers. What's it called? Since you don't even know what Cheer is, I know. I, I was going to say I'll, whatever it is, I'll watch it after Cheer. Somebody somewhere. It just started on HBO Max. Okay. And it was 
Um, Jay directed the pilot and it's uh, anyway, beautiful. Uh, but yeah, they've created some, they, they know what they're doing. Those Duplass brothers. Well, that's great. Well, it sounds like you're, you've got a wonderful support system out there, which is really important, especially now. Cause that's sort of the problem with all of this is that just that isolating and not feeling like you have a team. And if you feel like you have a team, you're just in much better shape. So true in every single aspect of one's life. I think that's true. You know, yep. I think like going back to cheer, it's it, one of the great gifts of being in the performing arts is I'm often in community and like groups of people. And I realize like a lot of people don't have that gift in their life. And I would, I just feel like if there's any way to cultivate that people should, because that's what people are longing for and missing. Um, and I know that part of why people envy even like friends of mine, what I do, no matter, even though it's like really hard and you're rejected all the time and there's no stability is like, I am in a lot of community. I, and that's was COVID, you know, we are the luckiest cause we still got to go to work. You know, we were sort of prioritized early and we, and there's so much money to keep us safe. There's so many protocols in place and blah, 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 blah. blah. So, I mean, I feel like the theater was screwed. I mean, they're like, that's the hardest part of it, but on camera TV people, we, you guys want, everyone wanted content. You know, there was, there's been tons of stuff made and continues to get made in COVID times because people are devouring content, you know? So I feel very lucky that way. Well, that's great. Well, we'll leave it on this positive note. So have fun with your honor. Uh, yeah, see, I started with depression and, and I ended with positivity. You're like, you're like human Cymbalta. <laughs> Always a pleasure but, to talk but, to you, Mark. I'll keep you up to date on the movie. If anything happens with it, I'll let you know. Absolutely. No, definitely keeping you up to date on the movie and everything else. And thanks so much. And, you know, be well, enjoy the sunshine and uh, stay healthy. That's our little <laughs> private joke. That's it for episode 18 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Amy Landecker for sharing such great stories, insights, and animal noises. You can see her on the Showtime series, Your Honor, which has been renewed for a second season, and hear her voice as Ugga on the Crudes TV series. Look for her upcoming indie film, I Love My Dad, co-starring Patton Oswalt as well. Thanks to the Carol Pop team, including web developer Marty Rosenbaum and Luke Carlozo, who recorded the Carol Pop theme. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who has some experience with DJs as well. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, food, and this Carol Pop podcast. Thanks. Thanks.